welcome and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most... <laughs> the most high-profiled homicides in Maryland, they are discussed, they are profiled, and they are examined. On this season, season five, the focus is on sick, twisted, pedophile-type rapists. Any type, any of those type of murders that occurred in Maryland, they are examined. Now, all of these types of homicides that occurred in Maryland, like I stated in the last season, um, Maryland has so many of these type of homicides and murders that this is just part one of these particular types of homicides. Part two, that will be featured later. So, with that being said, let's get right on into it. On this episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, the serial killer Charles Eugene Burns will be profiled. And as in each episode, an unsolved homicide that needs attention, that will also be profiled. And this episode's unsolved homicide, it features the double shooting murder of mother and son, 69-year-old Patricia Mosley, and her and her son 42 year old Samuel Jones okay let's just go there I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be the one to put it out there people be thinking that if a woman was out here tricking if she was basically out here in the streets selling her body doing whatever she got to do supporting a drug habit or whatever or if she was you know out in the streets doing whatever um, they think that, you know, if she out in the streets tricking or, you know, working the streets looking for sex, that she's playing Russian Relay. I mean, let me tell you something. I ain't, I'm, I never tricked a day in my life. But in my own personal opinion, tricking or prostituting yourself, I should say, that should take some serious courage to do. I mean, to hop in somebody's car that you don't even know, that you don't know nothing about. I mean, still, it's it's a very dangerous profession, and I, I I truly feel sorry for any woman that has to live like this, who has to do this. I I feel for the woman who who lose their lives like living this way is dangerous. I mean, the men that pick them up sometimes they believe that they could be easy prey or easy targets because they all here selling their bodies anyway. Most of them think that you know. The women already have low self-esteem. They already feel like shitty about themselves. They feel like they're not going to be missed. Um, they feel like that they they struggle with problems within themselves. They feel like drug addictions has them. I mean, they got open wants themselves. And most of them, when they get attacked out on the streets or whatever, they don't even report what has happened to them. Most of these women, they was out here doing whatever they got to do. They fully aware of the consequences and what can happen to them. But they take the risk anyway. It's a dangerous profession. And it's one that can prove to be fatal. Such as what happened in the case of serial killer, 34-year-old Charles Eugene Burns. You know, it's, it's like the cliche that you always hear about. A kid with a rough childhood... I mean, a very rough childhood where the kid in particular, a young boy, 
He grows up feeling that he's like unloved, he's unwanted, unvalued by his parents. Like it's, it's, it's like it's almost inevitable that it's going to have disastrous results. I mean, according to articles for the Baltimore Sun, Charles' childhood was brutal. He was born into a household where it was just normal for physical and emotional abuse by his mother. His mother was a single mother, and Charles never knew his father. I mean, um, growing up as a kid, the abuse that he endured from his mother, it, it must have been so bad that eventually he was taken out of his mother's care and put in a foster home. Um, he was separated from his family and his other brothers and sisters. As a young kid, Charles was placed in a foster home, then another foster home, then another foster home, then another foster home, just bounced around. Finally, when he got to be about 10 years old, a family did adopt him. But that it was too late. The mental and emotional damage from years of being abused and being bounced around and not wanted, that had taken its toll on Charles. I mean, the years also of like parental alienation, you know, I don't want you, and the neglect had already damaged his brain. It made him not care about anything, and it possibly taught him like to hate women. After Charles got adopted, at first, you know, everything was calm like it normally is. You know, you're trying to fill out your surroundings and trying to get to know this person. This person's trying to get to you. Um, the parents trying to get to know you. But after he got comfortable and he got used to his surroundings and became a teenager, he started showing signs of, like, extreme anger and rage and outbursts. His father said that, his, his parents said that he had outbursts of rage that was sometimes, like, uncontrollable. And as he got older... They became more violent, more frequent, and they lasted longer, and they became more chaotic. Um, dropping out of the school, dropping out of school in the sixth grade, Charles, he wasn't like a normal kid. I mean, everybody knew it. He showed signs. I mean, there's difference between being angry, but just trash in a room in a house and stuff like that. I mean, everybody knew he wasn't normal. And he was immediately placed into Shepherd and Enoch Pratt Hospital for six weeks of treatment and counseling. But later, when none of that treatment worked, Charles was sent to the Regional Institute for Children and Adolescents in Catonsville, where he finally received an official diagnosis of severe emotional disturbance. While he was a patient at the Institute, Charles saw no hope and tried to kill himself several times because of the mental anguish and the turmoil that I guess he was going through. And none of this treatment worked. I mean, you can't just talk everything out. Some people are just mentally permanently damaged and there's nothing that you can do to fix that. Charles, he continued to struggle with his anger, his depression, his feelings of no self-worth, his rage. In 1995, Charles, he did manage to get married. He did manage to find somebody to marry him, but when his wife suddenly just left him out of the blue, possibly because she saw signs of his anger and rage, you know, six years after uh, when, when she left in 2001, his whole fantasy of a family and a marriage, that was over. After Charles' marriage ended, 
so did his whole sense of stability, you know, his sense of I'm doing something right, his sense of security, and probably the sense of mothering, all of that was gone. And that feeling sent him spiraling down a mental hole of despair. Starting in 2002, Charles was convicted of driving while intoxicated, and later he was convicted for violating a protective order against a woman in Edgewood who told police that Charles had broken her finger and had been harassing her. I mean, this was a whole different woman than his wife, and they had been a couple for a short time, and she told the police that when she had lived with them, he told her himself that he was fascinated with serial killers and that he had read, like, every single serial killer book that he could find. He read all these books and everything, learning their ways, learning their M.O.s, and what to do and what not to do and all that other stuff. Hmm. That's weird because I read a lot of serial killer books too, but I'm not a serial killer. But anyway, for violating that the protective order, Charles was found guilty and he was given a $1,000 fine. Then, all of a sudden, bodies started popping up. 42-year-old Sheila Ann Turner, she was the first body to be found. Found in a remote field in Perryman on June 2nd, 2006. Two weeks later, on June 14th, 43-year-old Lillian Abramowitz Phelps was found in some bushes that was hidden next to a field that was in a cut in Oakton Road near Route 40 in Hobbit Grease. And this area is reportedly known for a lot of drug activity and prostitution. But anyway, Lillian, she was a mother of two from Elkton, and she had come to the area of Aberdeen with a friend on a whim. And after they, she spent the day drinking with that friend, Lillian went out looking for crack cocaine. She was found with her skull crushed with evidence on the scene suggesting that her head had been ran over with a freaking car. I mean, her jaw had also been ripped off her face, her ribs were fractured, her neck was broken, and she had two big-ass holes in her skull. Another body was found shortly after Lillian's body was found. 26-year-old Jennifer Lynn Blankenship was the next body to pop up in a remote field. Jennifer, who was from the 100 block of Spatia Road in Aberdeen, she was another mother of two and was diagnosed with bipolar depression, schizophrenia, and depression after she developed an addiction to alcohol, and heroin, and crack cocaine after her brother died in a car accident. Another body, 51-year-old Joyce Tolliver, was found by a man walking his dog in a field. Joyce, who never had a job, lived a lifestyle as a homeless woman on the streets. Her family had described Joyce as a free-spirited woman who loved music and loved playing the guitar and she was good at math. At one point, she had big dreams of going to art school and becoming an attorney, but she got hooked on drugs. She had last been seen on June 4th, 2006. Now, by this time, word got on, out on the streets amongst you know all the prostitutes in the area that there was a strange dude raping and killing them. Then, a mother and a daughter, who were both prostitutes, they both came forward and reported to the police that Charles 
took them back to the same remote grassy area on two separate occasions. The daughter reported to the detectives that Charles had choked her so bad that the blood vessels in her eyes burst and for days she had severe bruising around her neck. She said for for days her neck and her face was just bruised and she was just beaten into a pulp. She told them that she knew she was just going to die. I prayed. I fought like I fought him like crazy. She commented to the Baltimore Sun in an interview. She said that when she woke up from the attack, she found that Charles had taken all types of personal stuff from her purse, like her birth certificate, her social security card, and like all her personal photos. She was able to. She was able to get his license plate number and give it to the police. And when she when she did that. That's what ultimately led to Charles' arrest in June of 2006. Driving around in a gray Dodge Neon with bed sheets on his seats as like homemade seat covers. After Charles got locked up, more than six other women came forward and said that they had all been brutally raped and attacked by him. When investigators got a search warrant to search his car, it was over. It was wrapped. Lillian's blood, her scalp tissue, and hair was found on the right stabilizing link of his car. Plus the puncture marks that were found on her skull, they just conveniently matched a hexagon-shaped bolt that was under his car. I mean, they did, the detectives did their thing, but they didn't stop with that, just that. They did some more digging, and they discovered that uh, his cell phone records had put him right in the same remote area, the location where... Uh, Lillian's body was found and with that much evidence against Charles in Lillian's case Charles was held without bail and and charged with first degree murder although he was suspected to have killed at least three other women that the detectives knew of they just decided to charge him with this case because the evidence against him was the strongest I mean dude was all fucked up at the time he got arrested he, I mean, he, he did have a good job. Although the, he, although Charles did have a good steady job as a laborer, he still lived at home with his adoptive parents in Bel Air, and he was 34 years old. In April of 2007, when Charles's case went to trial, I mean, why he took this to trial, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know why he, he, he pled not guilty. But anyway, he took this to trial, and a Harford County jury of 10 women and two men. They only deliberated for three hours before quickly finding him guilty of first-degree murder. Although Charles showed no emotion when the verdict was read, he eventually wrote a letter to the judge talking about how bad he felt for the families of the victims, writing, As I sit here, I'm thinking of what could have been going through that girl's mind as this was happening to her. I know if this were me, I'd be saying... What kind of monster did I get a ride from? I'd be praying to God, please, Lord, help me. I mean, what? What made him pick up a pencil and write these words to a actual judge? I mean, these are the chilling words that he actually wrote to a judge. He wrote other letters saying that he knew something was wrong with him and he wanted to be housed or placed in the medical ward of the prison instead of general population. When the judge didn't respond to none of this foolishness or even acknowledge him, 
Charles started writing more letters saying that because of the victims' lifestyles, that they were far from being innocent, and because of all the media publicity that his case got, that he hadn't gotten a fair trial. In his letters, he wrote, I don't understand how the jury came back in two hours with a guilty verdict based on theories. Where was the state's hard facts that they had, or that they said they had? Your Honor, please give me a new trial. Oh, Lord. Suspected of killing at least seven other women, Charles Charles received a life sentence without the possibility for parole. Now, let me tell you something. This crime was kind of notorious in the state of Maryland because he was a low-key serial killer that people probably didn't really know too much about. And I'm going to be honest with you. They really didn't know too much about him because, for one thing, he was localized. He was in the area of Aberdeen, Harford County, Bel Air, that, that type of area up, up by that way. And also because, let's, let's go there, the victims. You know, they were prostitutes. All of his victims were prostitutes. Only one of his victims was black. Um, and it was like... Um, most, a lot of them, some of them weren't, wasn't even reported missing. Um, it was because of the lifestyles that they lived. He preyed on women, like most serial, or some, I would say, I won't say most, but serial killers usually have a preference. And, you know, prostitutes or people working in the streets or people struggling with drug addictions, they, for them, they make easy targets. You know, he, he was not the first a serial killer to prey on uh, these type of women, and he most likely won't be the last. Um, whew, the the courage that it must take to get into a stranger's car, or the pull of drug addiction, has got to be. I mean, I don't know from experience, but I would be terrified to do that. I mean, to get into a stranger's car that you don't know and agree to perform. This, that, and the third. I mean, that to me that takes courage. That takes courage. I I couldn't do it. I mean, whew. And then he ran over a woman's head, basically with his car. Wow. I mean, the medical examiner said in Lillian's death that the bolt matched those puncture wounds that was in her head. He ran over her head with his car. I I, I can't. Wow, the mental capacity it must take to do that. Um, and then he's sitting here writing letters to the judge. Um, dude, you're never getting out of prison. You're even though he wasn't charged with seven murders, you're never getting out of prison. You might as well make yourself comfortable. I mean, it also goes to show what could happen. You know, ugh, the after effects of abuse and neglect and. You know, just feeling unwanted for a boy. I mean, some people are hit hard with that, and that affects them, like, on a permanent basis. Jeez, but Charles Eugene Burns, telling you, like, a, a serial, he was a serial killer in Maryland that not a lot of people really knew about. He was low-key, and he preyed on women that were struggling with uh, drug addictions. But he is suspected of killing at least seven women. And uh, he will always low-key be a notorious serial killer in the state of Maryland. Now, moving right along into 
this episode's Unsolved Homicide. But before I do, let me just mention that like in each season before this one, season five, which we're in now, there will always, always be an unsolved homicide that needs attention, that will be discussed, that will be profiled. I mean, believe it or not, every person that gets killed in Maryland, they it does not make the news. Newscasts, they don't have time to record every single homicide. I mean, people don't believe that it really gets down like that in Maryland. And I would say particularly in, in Baltimore, they don't have time to report every single shooting every single homicide because it it's really is that often it really does happen that often i mean these is there cases that that you know don't always make the murder ink you don't always make the news it don't always make Ch- fox 45 these cases don't always get the attention that they deserve i mean that's possibly why they don't get solved it's more like a person or a victim was killed it was like they was here one minute and then the next minute they was gone and the victim's family is just expected to just pick up like and pick up where they left off like and move on with their lives like nothing ever happened and basically just hope for the best basically hope that the case gets solved hope they have answers you do you know how many people are walking around full of trauma because they have unanswered questions to what happened with their loved ones do you know how traumatic that is guess what that's why I'm saying, you know, it's like on this podcast, I know what that feels like. On this podcast, we give attention to not only, you know, high, notable high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, but a focus is also about unsolved homicides that may or may not have received the attention in Maryland that they, deserve, that they deserved. Or unsolved homicides where it seemed like nothing was done because the victim lived whatever type of lifestyle or did whatever in their personal time and they was almost expected to be killed. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it's like those cases don't get solved because they're like, okay, well, you know, what you expect? The family still deserves to know what happened and why. I mean, is this not the United States of America? The family still deserves justice. So with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the double shooting murder of 69-year-old Patricia Mosley and her son, 42-year-old Samuel Jones. On October 24th, 2016, at around 1 p 110, I'm sorry, on Monday, October 26th, around 12:15 p.m., the Baltimore City Department was the Baltimore City Fire Department was called to a row home in the 2200 block of Poplar Grove Street in West Baltimore for a report that a fire alarm was going off. When they got inside the home, they found the body of minister, 69-year-old Patricia Mosley, and her son, 42-year-old Samuel Jones. Both victims were shot in the head and face. Samuel was pronounced dead at the scene but Patricia was rushed to the University of Maryland shock trauma where she was officially pronounced dead. The neighbors told reporters for the Baltimore Sun that Patricia held, often held prayer meetings in her home on a regular basis. And Patricia's nephew released a statement to the Baltimore Sun that read, whatever happened here today 
She had nothing to do with it. It concerns me because I have other family members. And a neighbor commented, they were nice people. It's just a shame that that happened and had to be like that. Patricia's nephew continued, and it's very sad to know that she was taken away in the midst of whatever else was going on. Now, I don't know what that means, but guess what? The police have no leads. They don't have nothing. They don't have no suspects. As far as I know, they don't have no new information. Nothing. And there's a $2,000 reward for any information that leading to, that can lead to a conviction or an arrest. Anything in this double homicide. So, y'all already know what I'm about to say, how I'm about to kick it. If you have any information at all, no matter how small and minor it may seem, please call detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-877-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443-902-4824. You can also email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Now, I don't know. <sighs> wow. Mother and son. This one right here, it just, it, it's just, wow. I'm really surprised that this one is not solved. It just seems like this one just seems like this is a case where somebody needs to speak up. That's all I'm going to say. But those numbers, again, if you have any information at all, you can call Cold Case Detectives at 410-396-2100. You can also call them at Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-877-7-LOCKUP. You can send them a text message at 443 443- 902-4824. You can email them at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. And check this out. There's a way to do this. You can remain anonymous, people. You can. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. Also, for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the truth on why I do what I do. You'll you'll find out why I'm so into true crime. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and just decided to start writing books and articles and talking about killers and blood and gore and the years of, you know, being into the crime scene cleanup field as a foreman and you know, the <laughs> all the whole true crime, gore, and area and all that. There's a full-blown method to all of this madness. You know, no, I'm not a killer. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's just, I don't know. But either way, you got to check out that particular episode, and you can access that particular episode on um, the website or directly on the Anchor website or on Spotify. Now, also, be sure to pay a visit. Speaking of the new website... Pay, please be sure to pay a visit to the new website, www.marylandsmostnotoriousmurders.com. Uh, and Marilyn is spelled as M-D-S, 
mostnotoriousmurders.com to get immediate access to all of the previously released episodes from season one through season five, as well as links to all of the books that are related to this podcast entitled Marilyn's Most Notorious Murders 1990 through 2008 and Marilyn's Unsolved Homicides Volume 1 and my local bestsellers Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story. Be sure to tune in next week where another high profile, another bizarre, another noteworthy homicide occurring in Maryland, it will be examined, it will be profiled, and it will be discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a Savage Life production.